Welcome to episode 30 of Void Video. I'm your host, Evan Jordan, a.k.a. That Evan Jordan on Twitter. And I am Nick, a.k.a. Agent Relic on Twitter. And this week we have a special guest episode where we were joined by the writer and director Timothy Koval and producer Christina Benke of the recently released film Blood Conscious, which is available on VOD as a $6.99 rental or a $14.99 purchase. We're going to dive right into our chat and then follow it up with some of our personal thoughts. So let's get right into it. All right. So today we're here with Timothy Covell and Christina Benke, the writer and director and producer of Blood Conscious, a movie that just hit VOD on August 20th. And how are you guys doing today? We're glad to have you on the show. We're, we're doing great. Uh, the movie just came out, just released uh, nationwide and in uh, I think Canada, Australia, and New Zealand as well. Uh, so we're feeling good. And um, enjoying all the feedback we've been getting from people uh, around the country. Yes, I'm that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, we appreciate you guys coming on to talk to us about this. I saw this at Chattanooga Film Fest, and I wrote a, a review for it on our site and stuff. And it was it was one of my favorites that I saw. And I, I'm excited to ask you guys some questions, get a little insight into it. Why don't you introduce the movie for uh, people who haven't seen it? Kind of tell them what it is. Sure. Uh, Blood Conscious is a, a sort of, I guess you could call it uh, the, uh, a paranoia thriller, uh, sort of cabin in the woods, but it, in, in a sense it starts um, the day after a, uh, a slasher film has taken place or, or a massacre has taken place. So um, a vacationing family arrives at a, a distant uh, mountain uh, cabin um, expecting a you know, a leisurely vacation with their with the rest of their family. And what they find is uh, uh, everyone's been massacred by a shotgun wielding what they assume is a lunatic who believes he's fighting uh, demons and um, things uh, things deteriorate from there. Um, at, but at some point, they they basically need to decide for themselves um, whether they believe him um, and believe that these uh, you know, people are becoming possessed by demons, or whether they take him at face value, which is, uh, and, and just assume that he's the, the madman, uh, homicidal maniac that they, that he appears to be. Yeah, that's a perfect description. Uh, and it, I think one of the things you mentioned is that it, it takes place at a lakeside cabin. And I, I was wondering, what was the inspiration uh, behind choosing the Lakeside Cabin as the setting for the movie? Was it like a decision made for isolation purposes or were there other inspirations for that setting choice? Well, the location was uh, a real um, a real pain in the neck for us. O originally, I think the script called for something that was a little bit more wide ranging, like a campground that you might go to with chalet, you know, a series of cabins and chalets and maybe like a big central um, locale. And that uh, we kind of got into a situation where we thought, oh, it, it'll be cost effective. We can house everyone there, cast and crew, it'll be great. Uh, what we found though, was it just, um, it wasn't possible on our budget. We couldn't find any place that was open um, that would actually fit what we needed. Um, and we tried a number of different places throughout the state of New York um, um, in, in very various different kind of looks and, and feels. And we finally just went with the old classic um, big log cabin perched on um, perched in front of a, a mountain lake with, you know, pines surrounding it. And now I think, I think, Ultimately, it was the the right choice because it does harken back to some of the uh, the classics. I think Evil Dead being the most um, the most obvious um, obvious sort of comparison in that regard. Yeah, and it isolates the characters so they can't like call for help. It, it like makes help not readily available. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that kind of leads perfectly into your next question, Nick. Yeah, uh, so there's been a lot of slashers, but there haven't been that many movies that pick up after the events of a slasher from the perspective of people stumbling upon the aftermath. Uh, was there any particular inspiration for this? Yeah, I, I think um, 
one night, and this is years and years ago, we were sitting around, I think, watching um, Evil Dead 2. And if you remember, um, there's a point in the film, I think it's maybe about halfway through, Ash has been duking it out with demons uh, for the first half of the film, and he's sort of exhausted himself, and um, he's lying in the cabin, blood, guts everywhere, a shotgun beside him. And then these um, two people stroll in, and I think they're they're the children of the people who would own this cabin, um, if I'm remembering the movie correctly. Um, and they're immediately horrified. Oh my God, this guy's killed our parents. He's a maniac, and they they lock him in the basement. And about two minutes later, they realize their mistake. Demons are attacking. Uh, he gets out and, and, you know, and, and, and things kind of move in from there. But, but it occurred to me at the time while we were watching it that, oh, wouldn't that be an interesting um, opener for a film um, if you use the family as protagonists instead of the guy fighting the, um, fighting the demons and then just saw how long you can, could withhold the answer about whether they're demons or not from the, from the audience and from that family. So the movie is essentially your take on Evil Dead 2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I, mean, I haven't, awesome. quite I a, haven't seen <laughs> Evil Dead 2, so uh, <laughs> I didn't know that inspiration of it. That's pretty interesting. Waiting for a real treat when you get to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's kind of a... Uh, there's there's a lot of tension between the different characters and how they're all interpreting the situation, but there's especially a rift between kind of the way Kevin and Tony are interpreting the situation. And there's, you kind of have Brittany caught in the middle of it. And the whole time they're all working to escape all these horrors that have unraveled before them. And kind of up until the very end, the viewer, you've kept the viewer parallel with the characters, kind of questioning what's truthful and what isn't. Um, how did you manage to juggle that healthy balance of character motivation that fosters tension while also keeping the different points of view equally believable for the viewer? Wow. Okay, that's a, that's a that's a good one, and maybe pretty involved. I think uh, what we what I tried to do when I was originally writing it was to establish in that uh, opening scene when they're in the car the basic sort of I don't know it um, the, the the basic dynamic between the three of them almost this kind of you know not a love triangle but this type of tension where. Um, <clears throat> where you have Tony is a bit of a bully, Kevin is this bit of a misfit. Um, this uh, Brittany is sort of between the two of them, but at least at the beginning of the film, she seems to be more on the side of Tony, willing to go with him, poke some fun yeah. at her younger brother. Oh, he's a kind of a pain in the neck, whatever. Um, and then, um, and then allow that to develop those rifts to grow and grow um, over time. Um, and obviously the introduction of the, of the white characters really, um, helps to exacerbate that. Not, not, you know, not just because of, you know, racial tensions, but because of, um, the actual, uh, immediate danger they're in because of, uh, because of the stranger's appearance, especially. Um, right. And I think, um, it's there's a bit of a there's a bit of a two, there are two arcs right because um, some of the these tensions are set aside when they're dealing with the stranger because they're just sort of fighting for their lives trying to get this guy subdued trying to get this guy out of there um, but it's only kind of once he's dispatched um, that they those tensions sort of. Uh, come back around um, when they're fighting over well, what what really happened to him and and Kevin doesn't seem satisfied by this idea that he just. Um, you know, uh, died and, um, which is a reasonable concern, but, um, um, we see the, those sort of tensions build up again. And then with the appearance of Margie, she just sort of kind of blows the whole thing, um, up with this kind of strength of her, her personality, I think. Yeah, she definitely, once she enters it is, is an overbearing presence, uh, <laughs> for, for kind of the remainder of her time, uh, with the family. <laughs> <laughs> um I yeah, I think it, it definitely it it kept you uh kind of in the same situation as Brittany, although you had no bias in it like she did. Um where you were trying to guess like, okay, is Kevin on to something or is Tony, you know, 
is he right that nothing's really going on and Kevin's just paranoid about it? So you're kind of trying to pick between the two in your head the whole time. And I really liked the parallel it drew between the characters. And you uh, sort of slowly see Brittany shift towards her brother as the movie goes along, like shift along that line. Yeah. 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 Especially I think once the, um, the, once she sees that Tony is gone from just sort of placating Margie to, really pitting himself against Kevin in order to, to placate Margie. Um, I, th- I think that's sort of like, it's too, too much for, for Brittany. And you sort of see that, that um, she kind of rallies around her, 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 her blood, uh, so to speak, um, rather than stick with Tony. Right. But it's right. fun. People pick uh, you know, people get in Tony camps or people get in Kevin camps or people get in Brittany camps. Uh, I yeah. haven't seen it about a million times because, I mean, we, we've both seen it uh, countless times, uh, especially during the ed- editing, having edited it. Um, you know, I, I tend to be pretty sympathetic to Tony um, because I feel like, okay, you know, he's got a point uh, uh, through most of it, even if he is kind of a jackass. Uh, but well, you weren't when you first started working on it. Yeah, but when, yeah, when we first started, it was like, you know, clearly, clearly my heart was with uh, Kevin. Um, but we... I think, you know, when you talk to people, I think I'm always surprised by how much people hate Tony. <laughs> I, I was actually uh, going to mention this. I did not like Tony from the beginning. And like uh, Kevin at one or at one point he goes, uh, fresh air never killed anybody. Cause like Kevin's hesitant to go and Kevin goes, we have fresh air at home. And I love that line of <laughs> <laughs> him, like just not wanting to be there. And Tony just being a kind of dick about it. <laughs> Yeah, they sort of take turns dunking on each other, and it kind of, I, I think that's a, you got the aspect of, like, the stepbrother, or the, or the, I'm sorry, the, uh, like, the sister's new boyfriend or whatever, fiance, and then the, the actual brother, the kind of relationship that usually happens, is, you know, between those two. Yeah, yeah, it's not like, a, it's not like a romantic jealousy, but there is this sort of power play about, you know, who's right. the man of the house, so, so to speak. Right, um, and of course, anywhere Tony's going to be, he's going to be in, in charge. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's sort of tough for somebody like Kevin to compete with that. Yeah, for sure. Um, horror movies have a known history of characters with questionable decisions, uh, and we've seen that parodied in stuff like Scream and stuff like that. But uh, was that something you're conscious of while writing these characters? Because they do seem to try to think things through a lot more than your average slasher sort of victim oh yeah yeah very much so um i guess i would you know in the writing process i was thinking about that but then also trying to think well when you're when you're there's it's sort of a waiting game right they're sort of stuck in this cabin for a while they don't know they they figure they're going to be there until the next day i guess until light when they can leave um so and they're all keyed up because of all that's happened what else would they do besides try to talk it over? So they're going to talk, talk through everything constantly. Like, why is this person? Why did this happen? Okay, we're going to talk about it. We're going to each give our our reasonings. Uh, why why is this going on now? What should we do? Let's all talk about it. And that's kind of I, I don't know. That felt truthful to me, um, but it it sort of comes through in interesting ways, which is where characters might do things that are sort of what people consider oh typical horror movie they're going to go out in the woods or typical horror movie they're going to go down to the basement or whatever but they're going they're all going to fight about it before they do it so so to help sort of work the audience through this process with them like okay you really shouldn't go in the basement that's really stupid like don't do it oh come on like i'm just going to do it and then because they're kind of talking about it and it's maybe in some cases we're we're sort of having having some fun with it then it maybe acclimatizes the audience to to uh to accept it a little bit more if and um rather than just have it be okay character is going to go is, is going to march down the basement bravely for no reason other than their own, their own pride or something. I don't, you, you, uh, you kind of mentioned that um, when we were watching a few clips uh, the other day, Christina. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, it's almost kind of the irony of the story that they do put a lot of thought into everything that, um, that they're doing, but because it's such a ridiculous, impossible situation, they're kind of, they kind of end up making the worst decision anyway, even though they think they've, you know, thought it through and, and are doing the right thing. So, 
you know, it's, it's sort of like they can't escape the framework of the, of the genre that they find themselves caught in. Um, That's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't considered it from that perspective of their, of their stuck in the, in the, in the trappings of the genre. I like that, that, that kind of meta commentary there. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you used well, to say I, that they kind of stepped into a horror movie, right? Well, yeah, my, my kind of, you know, I, well, you know, our, our theories shift and I, I get like a slightly different theory about what it all means every time I watch it. But I, I've always kind of seen it as um, characters from a different kind of movie that took a wrong turn and ended up in a horror movie. And then that, you know, that's kind of like the Twilight Zone-esque aspect where they're, you know, now they're caught there and they're in this like endless loop. It's in some parallel universe. Yeah, there's, a, there's an alternate version of this where, where it's a, it's a, it's a drama, you know, a dramedy. Yeah. They go on vacation to the summer home. It's like, it's like a, a an indie funny people, you know, or an, I'm sorry, yeah, indie drama. They go yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, another thing that I think was really interesting and cool uh, were the the musical choices. Uh, specifically, there's one scene in the cabin while the shooter is is in the basement. Uh, and then also the end credits. What, what were kind of the inspirations for the musical choices, th both those and the rest of them throughout the movie? Well, um, that's a great question. That that actually um, was um, kind of in at script level. Um, well, we we you know live and work in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and there is a music label called Daptone Records, which is local to our neighborhood. And we've always loved their their music. They have a lot of it's like analog, you know, soul and all different kinds of genres of music. Um, so we, there was a song from their catalog that Tim had written into the script. Um, originally and so um so yeah once we once we knew we were ready to kind of start adding music in um while editing we managed to contact them and and found the song in the night by son and star um and i think when we were like looking through options you listened to it tim and just it was like the perfect thing um so from there we you know went through all the the kind of channels you have to go through to license license music and um but yeah, it, it works so perfectly. And I think it really gives a nice lyricism to that scene. Um, and then the, um, the score itself is, uh, is actually a, um, one, of the, one of the people who worked on the score is a composer that Tim has worked with um, on all of his short films. Ah, okay. Um, yeah, uh, Sam Tyndall's done, done all the music for the short films um, and uh, that I've made. And he worked with, um, a composer named Akari Uchiyama, and she she created uh, wrote the string arrangements. Um, we then recorded them, um, and then Sam took those kind of bass uh, recordings and um, remixed them and reconfigured them and kind of layered them and built them into the the pieces. Um, that you hear in the in the final film um and then um he, he kind of went through and made us um let's say maybe like 20 or so tracks um which i then plugged in in various places um and then in in order to sort of bridge some of the more suspenseful scenes which really required like down to the down to the second timing um our sound designer brian flood came through and wrote wrote a, a few new things and um uh re rearranged the existing the existing a few of the existing tracks in order to 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 kind of get the most out of a few you know some of the some of the um uh jump scares and things like that right right but it took i mean it took a really long time just because we weren't it wasn't like something like where we had a final picture cut we could hand off to a composer to just write write the music all the way through um, just because of availability. Um, Akari and Sam just sort of handed us um, this kind of big lump of various tracks and it was sort of like, okay, pick and choose where you where you want these to go and, and um, which was both fun and and, uh, and somewhat daunting. I think they actually composed, uh, Sam ended up composing those pieces um, just from reading the script. I don't think he had actually seen a cut of the film yet. Right, right. Um, so it, it was kind of happening in parallel and able to like weave them together as, as um, Tim was finalizing the edit. Yeah, that's really cool that you kind of had a, had a little bit of like, you, you got the, the, the composers got to create the music, but you also had a little bit of, you know, 
it wasn't like you were stuck with one specific song for one specific scene. You kind of had some freedom to to place it how you saw fit. Exactly, and it's um, uh, a good example of that is like that that opening track that plays when the the opening titles are going, um, and then that gets brought back in. Um, toward the end during the sort of final, I, I guess you would call it chase in the woods um, scene um, when they're, they're sort of out there and, and, and talking um, out there in the woods. And um, that was something where I don't think they had, I don't think it was written necessarily to be the main title track of the, of the, the film, but it just felt right when I was, editing that opening title sequence and I thought, oh, okay, well, let's bring, we've got to bring this back in at the end so that the audience knows, oh, okay, things are about to hit the fan here. Like, right. um, we're, we're kind of getting down, we're getting to this kind of big, big emotional climax. Um, and so that worked out, you know, in a situation like that, that worked out great for us. Yeah, it sounds like it all really came together just perfectly there. Um, and kind of you, you mentioned the the opening title and stuff. That title card has a very like retro style to yeah. it with the names and stuff coming up. And I I I love the, the style of that text and, and everything, and especially paired with the music. But that that kind of leads into my next question of what were your primary inspirations as far as uh other films go? Are there any favorites that you specifically paid homage to in Blood Conscious? Yeah. Yeah. Um so um a few of my, I guess, I guess the major touchstones for this one, um, funny games. Um, and I, that's okay. yep, I thought that with the opening credits thing, the funny games thing, <laughs> I just yep, wasn't yep. sure if it was actually like intentional or not. <laughs> um, it may have been, it may have just been subconscious, you know, it just may, may have just worked its way in, but definitely the, uh, framing of them in the, in the car coming in, in the, in the beginning, that's just straight funny games. Um, the three of them in a in the that frame. The only problem I had is we couldn't um, we couldn't rent a Range Rover um, where we were <laughs> in the Adirondacks, so I had to kind of make do with this. I think it's like an Explorer or something, and it didn't quite work as perfectly as I wanted with the with the uh, four point uh, uh, four three frame. Um, but so so Funny Games was a big one. Also, um, in terms of a lot of the way the camera moves throughout the. Um, the, especially the big cabin scenes. Funny Games was a major influence. Um, Sung Rae Cho, the, the director of photography, and I spent a lot of time looking at how Michael Hanako, um was moving his camera around the, the, the cottage in Funny Games and cutting between two very long um, camera takes. And another film that was uh, very influential was Larry Fessenden's Wendigo. Okay, Larry Fessenden always comes up on this podcast. I swear it's the there's more degrees of Larry Fessenden than there are Kevin Bacon by a long shot. Uh, because we always find a way to <laughs> to tie a movie back to Larry Fessenden somehow. So that's really cool that that Larry Fessenden was one of the inspirations. Yeah, and his, I mean to me, Wendigo it's one of my all time favorite films. Period, horror films or or films. Period. And it's, um, I just, I love it. I, I, to me, the, the family dynamic feels very, very real. Um, and I've watched it countless times. And so that, that was um, certainly a big influence on what I was trying to do, which was set up really, it was effectively a family drama, um, but that just sort of unfolds inside of a, a thriller, you know, um, which is, I, I think, basically what, what when to go is. Um, and then, um, the other film that I used as a reference a lot was Ingmar Bergman's Through a Glass Darkly, um, which, uh, is much, which was a big influence on me when I went to film school, um, a long time ago. Um, I've always loved it and it's just, it's a small cast in a cottage on, on a lake and it's just it's just very elegantly put together. And there is this sort of uh, one of these, again, it's not necessarily a love triangle in a traditional sense, but a Freudian one between a, a, uh, an older sister, a younger brother um, and a husband. Um, there's also a father present and it's just the, the, the dynamic that, that uh, unfolds there is, is always really captivated me. And so it was, it was a major influence um, on this. And of course the thing, yeah, yeah, I'd have to. I'll have to check uh, the Ingmar Bergman film out. I've not seen that one. Um, 
and obviously yeah the thing i mentioned that in my review that the uh that i knew people would draw parallels to the thing as soon as it because I, I knew i saw it in other reviews already and i was like that's definitely the the yeah. the, the way you have the paranoia kind of flowing throughout is it matches up with the thing and especially with the kind of the final act of the movie uh and how you yeah, oh, yeah. I don't want to say too much here without giving a, you know what I mean? I don't want to ruin it for somebody who hasn't seen it that maybe listened to this, but you know what I mean with the very, especially the very end of yeah. the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. And also I think in some ways, um, even more so than the thing, the way that, that kind of paranoia story unfolds is um, there's a twilight zone episode called the monsters are due on Maple street, um, which is a, about a suburban street um, full of people where someone somehow the lights go off it's like the power goes off and they they somehow they get this idea that um, there's an alien invasion and that like one of them is an alien and so they start to turn on each other and it's a it's basically a, um, a metaphor for the red scare um, 50s red scare um, and these sort of you know kind of communist witch hunts um, and so that always struck me as, as really exciting writing. I mean, I love Twilight Zone, um, uh, you know, all the episodes. Uh, but yeah. I think with that one, I felt like, oh, okay, I can see this and I can see where you, you're kind of, I'm, I need to kind of reach for a metaphor. And so in some ways, um, that's kind of what led me to flesh out the story the way I did. And also I think, Probably at the at the time I was writing it, this is 2014. So um, what was happening? This is like the time of the Ferguson riots, um, and um, um, that happened in the aftermath of Michael Brown's murder. And so um, the uh, I think what was really on my mind was like, okay, how, you know, what does this? What do, what did the demons mean in this movie? Like, why am I? Why why do I care about the demons or whether they think people are demons? And I think during that time, I realized, oh, okay, well, it's this way we're able to sort of um, demonize someone else or or other someone else um, to the point where we can sort of justify either killing them or or be callous toward the fact that they've been they've been killed. Um, and I think even in the um, the testimony of the police officer. Um, in, in that case, they asked him, well, you know, what were you thinking when you were shooting this unarmed guy? And he said, um, I, I, I think that the quote is, all I can say is it looked like a demon. I mean, he literally said that. And I already had this screenplay wow. I was in the middle of, and I thought, whoa, okay. And now I'm seeing this metaphor take shape here of like how you can, you know, um, now whether he truly believed that or is something he's saying, I don't know. But um, it, it really, it really struck me as powerful, um, especially since this was this was a story I was in the middle of and working on um, uh, daily. So um, right. that's kind of why I think I decided to okay, I have to make this the family and the protagonist um, uh, uh, black because it's this is a story that kind of. Um, this sort of othering and this sort of demonization it's it it's not solely um racism it's not that's not the only way people do it but it is a major right. it is a major way that um that, that happens and so it just kind of made sense to me at the time and i've certainly never regretted it since yeah yeah it definitely draws a lot of parallels to to all of that and that's super like like I, unbelievable that you happened upon that that testimony and all that stuff you know like as after you're already writing the movie and stuff that's that was just like perfect uh perfect, yeah yeah you know, i mean put, I it, to put, it, in, put it into perspective for you yeah 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 uh well i urge our listeners to go and check out blood conscious wherever it's available it's on all vod services so amazon voodoo uh wherever you get your digital movies you can get this and uh is there any like where can people keep up with you guys on the internet? Oh, we're all over the internet. Um, well, there's uh, you know the the movie has accounts um, or at Blood Conscious on um, you know Twitter and Instagram, and I think Blood Conscious Film on Facebook. Um, and then uh, you know I'm I'm out there on, on the Twitter and the Instagram. <laughs> okay. Um, and. I pretty much stick to Twitter. Yeah. Uh, at tall Tim Covell, C O V E L L. 
right on. And I'll include all those links in the description for our listeners. So you guys can click on those and get right to them. And Timothy and Christina, again, thank you guys for, for coming on and talking to us about this super cool movie. And I, I hope, I hope everybody is talking about this, you know, months from now and that it, that it allows you guys to get what you need to make another one. Cause I'm excited to see another one. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Let's We're excited to make another one. <laughs> hey, uh, well, thanks for having us uh, on to chat and, um, yeah, thanks for the great questions. We appreciate it. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks again to Timothy and Christina for joining us on the show and giving us some insight into the production of the film. That was a super fun chat, and uh, I'm excited to see what their future holds. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess we could get right into our uh, our thoughts. And so this this film, I guess we'll we'll do the normal thing of of telling you what it is, even though they kind of did as well uh since we're going to start at the opening and go through it um so the the movie opens with a successful young entrepreneur named tony nick's favorite character uh <laughs> and his fiance Brittany, who are driving to her family's old vacation spot by the lake for like a little weekend getaway with her parents and they are accompanied by her very uninterested younger brother kevin uh and you kind of open with them in the car like bickering a little bit and there's some good banter back and forth especially between kevin and tony <laughs> that's uh pretty funny yeah they're it's pretty like, much chastising him for wanting to stay home and play video games i think or something like that right yeah yeah for play for wanting to stay home and play video games and tony's like oh you can you're not gonna get laid in front of the computer screen and like right away you know he's like a hot shot like you know his kind of personality you know and it kind of it's a good way of giving you some quick characterization on the on the characters and they they pull up to this uh, this lakeside retreat that's like seemingly deserted. Oh, yeah, and uh, Timothy had talked about this, but uh, definitely some funny games vibes in the opening because after they're done talking, it plays like that yes. music. It's not heavy metal like funny games, but it's definitely the title cards are like, you know, I instantly thought of funny games, and I just didn't know if it was intentional or not. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't even think of the funny games reference till you brought it up in the interview, but that was a good eye. Uh, because yeah, it, just like the title, how the how the title, like the fonts are played and like in your face like that, and then the music, right? Too. And it's use, going down that like country road, also, you know. Yeah, pulling into the because like really, yeah, funny games is very similar to this um, in a lot of ways. But um, I forgot what kind of music they're playing when uh they do the title sequence. It's not heavy metal though. No, it's kind of like some some like brooding, like you know, like something's gonna happen like tension building kind of music you know yeah but they kind of they pull up to this like deserted campsite and they're like walking around looking for their family that's supposed to be there and they think it's super weird that they don't hear anybody or see anybody and they're like going through the cabins and they're all empty and there's like there's a good shot the characters don't notice it but there's a good shot that i really like in this part where they they go into this particular cabin where their their family was supposed to be staying and there's a shot of them standing there, but it's like focused on their waist. And you see two like mugs behind them on the table that it like is clearly wanting you to look at. They have like tea bags in them and the tea still sitting out. It's like letting you know, it's like kind of letting you know and hinting at that stuff was left suddenly, you know, like something happened. And they keep like giving you those visual hints, like a shotgun shell on the ground and all this different stuff. And I kind of like the, the cinematography and the way they like teased what's going on during this section. The word he was looking for was foreshadowing. And uh, I don't think we brought it up in the interview at all, but uh, the movie shot in not, it's, uh, what would that be considered? Four to, three, not, four to three aspect ratio? Well, it's actually 133.1, but yeah. Oh, it looks, is it? Yeah, it's, it's like squished in. Uh, it's not widescreen, it's... Uh, yeah, it's like square, like, let, like uh, what do you call that? The light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah, like the lighthouse. Like bars yeah. on the side. Yeah, like the lighthouse. It's a good, good like, modern. Like an comparison. old, yeah, an old school movie. And I guess it was to help with the framing of the different heights of the characters and the cabin spaces. But yeah, yeah, that, which is interesting. I never had considered that that'd be a reason for because because I, I actually had that as a question before we interviewed him, and we actually found that information on the internet that that's why they chose it. So I I didn't ask that, but. Because I, I just never had considered that for a reason they would shoot in 
a different aspect ratio is like character heights and framing, but that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah. But they they kind of are meandering around looking and Kevin kind of splits off on his own and he sees his mother's sitting with her back to him in the chair and he he yells at the other two, "Hey, I found him." And he goes over there and finds his mother's dead shot up body in the chair and then as he's backing away kind of in horror he trips over some stuff and when he falls down he notices his dad shot up dead body against a tree and sees a bunch of other bodies and stuff and immediately is approached by a gunman with a shotgun pointed at his face and that's when Tony and Brittany kind of roll up and are like, what's Tony say? Oh, I knew y'all were grilling out here. And he turns yeah. the corner and there's like a shotgun in his face. <laughs> yeah. And that actually like is the moment with my favorite line in the whole movie. There's a bunch of, there's a few really memorable lines and I don't know if they're intentionally funny or not, but uh, <laughs> the, the stranger who is the, the guy who supposedly shot up his, their family, you know, he, uh, he goes, are you humans or are you demons? And Tony goes, we're on vacation. <laughs> yeah, and it's like you immediately know, too. I love Nick Dimitri's performance because he, you know, immediately like the, the way he says that line, you know, this guy's a fucking nut. You're like, oh, man, <laughs> this is this is not a good situation. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you may actually recognize Nick Dimitri from uh, things such as Stakeland. And what was the other one that yeah, you had seen uh, that he? Uh, Cold in July. Uh, he uh, also wrote both of those. Yeah, I've still got to watch Cold in July. You mentioned that on the on the Revenge episode we did a couple weeks ago. But I recognized him from Stakeland, and he's definitely the one I knew out of the lot in this one. And uh, yeah, he had a vaguely familiar look throughout the whole movie. I didn't actually like pinpoint who he was until after, but like the whole movie, I was like, man, he looks familiar. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's he seems to be the one with kind of the most like. Uh, prominent credits history too like he's been in a lot of more lead roles i think than the other uh actors in the movie so it makes sense that we recognized him i guess yeah and this is actually uh i'm gonna apologize ahead of time for what's probably gonna be a butchering of this name but this is ogonero gabaje's first uh feature film role um he's the one who plays kevin kind of the main protagonist of the film and uh, i think he did a pretty good job as as his debut feature role yeah yeah because i think he was in one short before and that was it yeah he was actually in another feature that didn't get released and it was years ago now so i'm not sure what the status of that is but i thought he put in a good performance as kevin and, and had a good good range of emotions that he had to go through kind of for his first movie and was able to pull it off yeah so they have the shotgun in their face and the the stranger kind of takes them to back to the cabin and puts him on the ground and is like, all right, I want you to stay here until morning. I got something to take care of. And he leaves the cabin and they're like, all right, we'll fucking call the cops. And he, he quickly remembers that, uh, he didn't get their phones. So he comes right back, takes their phones and stuff and then dips like I, and I'm curious. I, I wish we would have asked him this. What, what does he go do? Is he just trying to leave? Because he, He's, he when he sh when he eventually shows back up, he explains that there was a car crash and stuff, and he was attacked or whatever. He claims he was attacked, and but what? Where was he going? I wonder. He never says. He was probably yeah. He had to be trying to leave, but then he was saying the thing when he came back too about like the demons won't let you leave the woods or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but I yeah. So I'm curious where he went or what he was trying to do during that <laughs> that time period. He had to be trying mm -hmm. to leave. And then they just, the, the quote unquote demons wouldn't let him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, a kind of a cool sequence too, of how they find the car. Cause like Tony, like an idiot, because he's Tony goes out by himself against Kevin and Brittany's wishes to try to get help. He's like, I I'm, I'm, I'm fast. I'll, I'll be right back. Yeah. He's <laughs> and, like play, uh, he playing the macho man, you know, like he's going to be tough and go take care of it. <laughs> yeah and then he he walks out and he finds the car crash on fire and all that and uh while he's doing that Brittany and kevin 
run back into the stranger. So he just <laughs> that that's one of the few jump scares in the movie is when he shows back up. That kind of uh, yeah made me jump a little me. bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hit, uh, Brittany and Kevin are like they've they're trying to kind of they know they're stuck here, so they're trying to kind of combat their situation by drinking and turning on some cheerful music and uh and she's like looking out the window for for tony and the the gunman like pops up and it's it's really effective (laughs) yeah and then they confront him and tony arrives back while they're like struggling to fight him and they end up knocking him out and putting him in the basement (laughs) yeah yeah there's a funny line when he shows back up they he he has him against the wall and he and kevin's like wait we've been drinking demons drink alcohol and uh the stranger's like well how the hell would i know and kevin's like why would they (laughs) and this logic was okay in his head for a second he was like all right that's a good point why would a demon drink alcohol (laughs) yeah and can a demon drink alcohol? like (laughs) yeah yeah exactly can they like that's a good point that i wouldn't have actually considered myself but yeah they they throw them in the basement and they turn the music back on and stuff and kevin's kind of like talking to him through a vent in the basement or whatever and so you you kind of get the idea that maybe kevin is more willing to believe what the stranger is saying about the demons and stuff than tony and Brittany are you know because tony's like straight out this guy's a nut Brittany's kind of on tony's side a little bit this guy's a nut and then but she also like kind of realizes kevin's freaked out by something else and thinks that maybe he he he's reasonable so he wouldn't be freaked out you know if he didn't see something worth being freaked out over so she's kind of torn between the two sides and like i said in the interview you can see britney slowly shift from tony to kevin throughout the movie right right which is totally kind of kicked into overdrive whenever a character named margie shows up later in the movie and she kind of throws a curveball into the whole situation wouldn't you know no service. What? Come on! Uh, I don't know how much detail we go into about Margie's, uh, who she is and everything, but she's connected to the situation and claims that her husband was shot during it all. And it becomes pretty clear right from the start that, because you already are starting to question even the people who you thought you could trust already, like from the beginning, and, and so you really don't trust this person when she shows up. And Yeah, and also Kevin doesn't because... Margie is like, oh, your dad, he was so heroic. And Kevin's like, you know, he's talking to Brittany after, you know, after Margie, I think, like, went to bed or something like that. And yeah, he goes, our dad was not heroic. <laughs> like, he's like, that doesn't sound like my dad, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's like, that doesn't sound like our dad at all. He's like, he used to always say, you know, better, better uh, safe than dead or something, something to that effect. And he's like, there's no way he would have ran across that bridge first, you know, and like. He's definitely doubting Margie's uh, intentions and her kind of story that she's fed him. Yeah, and I think that's like a theme that runs throughout this movie is like the movie, it's clear that Timothy didn't want you to feel comfortable at all with any, like a lot of, like most movies would pick a side, right? To showcase, right? but like they they play the middle, the whole movie, the entire thing. Like it plays the middle of doubt and oh wait, but... Like, yeah, because he, he, he include those little details that make you question yourself, kind of, too. You're like, but, oh, I'm pretty sure it's this person. But then you're like, oh, but wait, this little thing happened. And then you're like, I don't know, maybe not. You know, you kind of yeah. play that game with yourself throughout the, the runtime. Yeah, and then, okay, like, Kevin brought up something, and I'd be like, oh, wait, uh, you know, he is right. You know, that he makes a good point. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also the... the uh, the stranger kind of comes into it in some interesting ways and as well as Margie, I think they get a, did a good job with like kind of introducing, like I said before, curveballs kind of to the situation that shake things up and, and change the path of, of worth what they thought they were going to do, you know? Yeah. But I guess that's kind of all we do for the, um, pl- I mean, yeah, we don't really want plot, it's probably, yeah. As far as we go, huh? Yeah. Um, I guess if I had to talk about some cons, uh, it's that you can see that the 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 movie had a low budget. It's apparent at times, uh, and that you know these actors are are not as experienced as you know Brad fucking Pitt. But like 
I think they they held their own and really put in some good performances and I think uh the writing is 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 fairly strong and I think it has some good homages too to like w- which we learned even more about after we talked to Timothy to uh kind of some of the horror classics, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and as I said, like, I guess my con would be, like, it plays the middle so much that it's hard to, like, and I wish the message was clearer of what is going on or, like, what happened. Because, like, really, there's a lot of questions the ending even brings up, you know, that don't get answered. And I wish it would have stuck that uh, a little better. Well, I've been a little less ambiguous, huh? See, and I, yeah. I, that's, that's one part where we differ a little is I like that ambiguity because it, after the movie, I was still like, fuck, man, I, I, it made me think about it more, I think, than it would have had they told me the answer to it all. Um, but that's definitely well, it's not a, even, a preference, you know, like, I think that's. Yeah, it's not even that I wish me. that answer. I just wish that the, it, it wasn't so, because there's a lot of, like, times where you're like, wait what the fuck is going on? Like, there's a point where Margie, she says she lost her phone, right? So, like, she can't get her phone. Then, Kevin finds her phone, and she just walks in, and she goes, wait, you found my phone, so it's not missing. Like, it's just like, wh- what is even going on here? Yeah, see, and I think that one particular situation, we discussed this a little before we recorded, is that it's kind of like she's, her character is lying, so it's hard to tell if that was intentional, you yeah. know, that she, like... Yeah, I think it's, all intentional like it's all intentionally done that way to be super like paranoid like because he calls called it a paranoia thriller right that's what he called yeah i think it is yeah which is a perfect description because that's and i think i even mentioned that in in my review that it's it's a a, an exercise in managing paranoia because you kind of get paranoid pretty quick you know about like what the fuck's happening and like who's who's safe to trust and who's not yeah yeah because even the main characters you're like can i even trust them (laughs) yeah 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 it does a good job i think of playing with with your your paranoia and your perceptions of the of the characters and and kind of shifting them as the movie goes back and forth a bit yeah and it kind of like i I think i mentioned this in the in the interview too that it kind of put you parallel with the characters too because they're kind of in the same situation of they don't know they're kind of juggling around their trust and it kind of has you doing a similar thing which is a cool parallel between you and the characters in the movie yeah i think too like i mentioned that the low budget is apparent sometimes but i think that the filmmakers that they managed to cleverly like mask the majority of its potential weaknesses via the kind of minimalistic presentation and like way the story's told where they kind of focused on the character interactions, which allowed the writing and performances to to sell it as opposed to like an expensive production, you know? Yeah. So I think they were they were smart uh, with with what they had, especially and and really put something together out of nothing. And I think that's that's the spirit of independent filmmaking, right? Yeah. Putting putting together something out of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think uh, I think this is a an excellently uh, paced and, and executed independent thriller, and and like we've we've mentioned a few times, it does a good job of messing with your head while you're watching, and even when it ends, it's still messing with your head, and it's yeah. got some some well done cinematography, and uh, the aspect ratio is fairly unique and kind of almost gives it a sense of claustrophobia a bit because you're you're locked in this cabin with them, you know, and. Overall, uh, a, I think a, a phenomenal first effort from from these filmmakers, and I'm excited to see what they do next. Yeah, yeah, and like we talked about in the interview, like it's interesting that it's a slasher film where you don't see the slashing. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like a post slasher film. That's it. Can I, can we coin that? Slasher. It's a post slasher film. Yeah. <laughs> Void video, just out here setting trends, making new genres and shit. <laughs> but yeah you can check this this movie out on anywhere you you get your vod movies at wherever you prefer i grabbed mine on on uh amazon i know they grabbed his on voodoo but it's on itunes and uh roku i believe and all those other stores google um youtube 
And it's a, like I mentioned before, a, a $6.99 rental or a $14.99 purchase. And I think it's worth the purchase. Go buy this movie and support these filmmakers so we can get something else that's super cool from them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely interested to see where they go next. Absolutely. And again, thank you to, to Timothy and Christina for coming and chatting with us. And uh, I think that that made it a movie that I already enjoyed a lot. It made it even more enjoyable getting to talk to them about it and, and getting some of that kind of insight into how they put it all together and how their minds were working when they, uh, when they wrote it. Yeah. And those homages, I really like that aspect of the interview was him talking yeah. about like the evil dead two and the, the funny games thing. And, uh, I forgot what other films he was, he mentioned. Yeah. A handful, quite a few. And I like, that's, that was cool. Yeah, you're right. And, and uh, you could like, s- we caught some of them, but we didn't catch some of them, which was kind of neat. Yeah. yeah, there's like clear ties to those, you know. Yeah, and definitely a, a clear passion radiating from, from both Timothy and Christina. And I, that's something that I just find infectious when I find people who are passionate about movies, you know. And I, like me and you, I, like, I, I could talk for hours about this stuff because it's just, I love it. And it's it's clear that they do too. So that's that's cool when you get to connect with somebody like that. Yeah, and if and if you do watch it, uh, there is a post credits scene, which yeah. I don't know what it means though. <laughs> yeah, we should have asked about that too, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe not of all the questions. <laughs> yeah, maybe not in the interview though, because it might have spoiled the ending. But I was like, right. I saw the post credits. I was like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should have asked about that after it ended. Before we close out here i i want to uh shout out i just put an article up today a review for episode one of dracula's kung fu theater a show that is airing on retro tv every friday at 10 p.m and that's 10 p.m eastern pacific which is an american broadcasting thing so it it plays at 10 p.m in every time zone so you'll get it later if you're on the west coast but uh, all that information is in the article but go check that out it's a it's a cool kind of um hosted movie show uh similar to something like the last drive-in with with joe bob briggs or elvira's movie macabre but uh with dracula as the host and he shows kung fu movies which is a cool kind of unique thing and you can you can check out my full write-up on the site i'll drop the link to that in the description my name is dracula and i am here to say i love vhs kung fu films in the major way no longer a monster who drinks human blood now I watch films in my castle with my werewolf blood. Take it, Pete! No, cut, cut, stop the music. You've ruined it. Now this is crap. In the intro! It's Dracula's Kung Fu Theater. And uh, keep your eye out because there will be two more of those coming this week, uh, as well as an interview with Dracula, in addition to uh, a write-up of my interview with Isaac Rathy, the director and writer of Duel on the River that we recently showed in our discord and uh you can get a hold of that probably thursday or friday so check that out and as always thanks for coming to void video